Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. We often, then, we often give them what we call an exclusive faith. And when you write that down, and some of you might be, I want to make sure that you have it clarified and you quote me correctly. We do have an exclusive faith. We believe, above all, the centrality of Jesus Christ in God's Word, do we not? And around that centrality of Christ, we believe that God is God. He is not a good God. He is not the better God. He's not the best God because all those terms are in relationship to other gods. He is the only God. The rest is nothing but man-made stuff or Satan kind of stuff out there, but it's not God. There are no other gods but God. Okay, we make those gods. So we have God. We have Christ who is God in the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit who is equal to God. It's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we have a totem pole deity. We don't have that. So we have all of that. We have the belief system that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So we have that salvation is only one way, through Jesus Christ. And last, we have the Bible as God's vine on paper, hard on paper. You'll hear me say that a gazillion times, but I want you to know it is the sufficiency of Scripture. So we have the exclusiveness. The problem is sometimes we have the exclusiveness, but we don't unpack that exclusiveness and how that relates, watch this now, to the young person and how that they are properly to relate to those who are outside the faith. And so what happens then, sometimes they can get so excited about what they believe, because that's what we believe, and we get them all excited because of the messages and the pounding of the pulpit, that they got all that. But then they use it as a weapon, in a club, in a screaming match, with their unsafe friends on the team, or in the club, at school, or their jobs. And really, none of those truths were meant to be whips and clubs. Those truths were made for us to have a sustainable Christianity in our heart and have the confidence to be able to stand strong and last long for the Lord. But then we take those truths, watch this now, and we dip them in honey and we give them to the lost world. So truly, our truths that we have are not exclusive, okay? They are meant for the world to know, but to be given in such a way that they can be received. And we have to help them bridge that gap. And somewhere along the line... We haven't been able to do that. And so they want to reject our brand of faith, but they really don't see our brand of faith as being as what it really is. Here's the fourth. There's only four I picked out of here. The other one is no answers for the opposition. There's no answers for the opposition. In other words, um, they know that Jesus is God, but they don't know why. They know the Bible's inspired, but they don't know why. They know that God is the only God, but they don't know why. Some churches... I commend them because they have spent a great deal of time teaching their kids what to believe, but they neglected to teach them why they believe what they believe. Did did you catch that? All right. What to believe, we have that in Bible doctrines. Why they believe what they believe is called apologetics. Apologetics doesn't mean that you apologize for your faith. It means that you're able to give an answer to every man who asks you the reason, the hope that is within you. At least that concept of doing that. And so the churches that have learned to help the young people, watch this, and help the adults bridge this together on apologetics, help those young people to stand strong and last long when they are confronted. Now, let me make this very clear on this point, very important. It doesn't mean that we have to unload 
the entire commentary set into the mind of our kids. We don't have to unload the entire systematic theology in their, in their brain. What it does mean, we need to give enough of them to give them enough assurance and, watch this now, and the reasoning to say, when I'm asked a question, I may not know the answer to that, but I do know where to get that answer. And whether it's they were taught how to study the Bible on their own, they got all the tools to do it when they get out of the house, or at least they know to go to you or someone that they trust and respect, watch this, and that you know how to give them and show them where to go for that answer so they can stand strong and last long. We have to be able to do that. I'm telling you that the, Satan is such a powerful being and has infected the educational system with false truth. That's a contradiction in terms there. False reality lived out by people who embrace that false and are now apostles of that false teaching. And they're going to get that full on for God. And don't think it changes a great deal when they go to a Christian liberal arts school. Because more education sometimes is done on the dorm floors than it is in the classroom. And I think you know what I'm saying with that. So I want you to know that's why a lot of the kids left the faith. So now the question is, is what happens then? What does the survey say? Here's what I got all of that, and this is really important. The survey says this. It doesn't have to be that way. I want to give you hope, real hope. Not every young person has left the faith. Not every young person who appears to have left the faith never comes back to the faith again. So let me ask you that question. How many of you know someone that really wobbled in their faith greatly, a young person? But somewhere along the line, there was a come-to-Jesus moment or an event or a period in their life where they came back to Jesus. They came back to that faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Would you raise your hand if you knew someone? Look at that. Now, what, the rest of you that lost your child, that you think left the child, I want you to look at these people that raise their hands. It ain't over till it's over. So there's hope for you, okay? Well, now the question becomes, um, all right, what do we do? What can we do to help them keep their faith? Again, I'm giving you secular answers before I give you the biblical answer, all right? But this secular answer is something that's really worth your time to ponder. Here are the three as we went through the research of this, that we found for the kids that didn't really abandon their faith. What are the three highest things that they did that caused them not to abandon their faith? Here they are. Number one, students with sticky faith were raised in a faith culture that emphasized a relationship with Christ as opposed to an adherence to a set of rules. Now, we're not abandoning structure. We're not abandoning policies. We're not abandoning right and wrong. We don't have moral relativism going on here. But at the same time, it's born because we have a relationship with Christ. You probably have heard that one of the mantras at Florida Bible College, and it's because it is who I am, therefore I guess it'll be played out here, is the, the simple phrase. Our intimacy with Christ, if it's an accurate intimacy, an accurate Christ, a biblical Christ, our intimacy with Christ, authentic intimacy with Christ, will then fuel our outreach for Christ. And so this is all talking about that that we want to reach out to others and do all of this stuff, but it's really born on having a close walk with the Lord. So as parents and teachers, we need to evaluate whether or not we're focusing on training them to merely embrace behavioral patterns, even good ones like reading your Bible and prayer and all that, not putting that down, that's important, but not just going through the motions based on a system of do's and don'ts, 
Are you still tracking? It's a long thought. Not only teaching them that, but we're also focusing on modeling our own intimacy with the Lord that's genuine. I frankly don't believe that you can model intimacy with the Lord um, for a long period of time if you don't have a genuine intimacy with the Lord. Now, once you have that, I'm going to tell you, then as you come alongside your young people, the faith is going to stick because you're going to emphasize, do you know the Lord? It's about Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you, for me, and I preach this, teach this, been this, in this thing a long time, it's still a, a day-to-day thing. You think of how many times my phone would ring and all the ministries I'm really responsible for, the church, Florida Bible College, Make It Clear Ministry, national speaking, writing, all of that. I'm telling you, I'm bombarded with humongous amount of distractions. So it's like a battle that I have every day to have that intimacy with the Lord. The good news is, is I'm not battling whether or not I should or whether or not it's important. I'm battling my own self to say, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. So what I do is I get up early, I wake myself up with a little bit of exercise, and then I jump right into the Word for my own personal life development. Nearly every day. And the day that I miss, it's like missing a meal. I'm grumpy. I need to get back to it. So I struggle with it too. I'm where you are. But I know where I need to be. I know where I want to be. And I know that I'm having a reasonable amount of victories. So I'm only saying that because we can do it together. You can do it too. I can do it. Number two, here's the second, I guess, ingredient so the student's faith will stick. This is very important. I hear this in this church a lot, so I am pleased, very pleased. Students with sticky faith are surrounded by an intergenerational faith community. Is that a big bite of the apple? An interfaith, intergenerational faith community. What that means, young people is that while the church provides you with opportunities in a safe Christian environment to hang with your buds, okay, I don't even know if that's a common cultural term any longer, you know, you know whatever you do with your friends, they, they'll, they'll do that because that is important and how to kind of learn to work with one another and guys with guys, guys, girls with girls, guys and girls, you know, got all of that. But at the same time, there's a high value on, on intergenerational exposure. And so this church really does a lot to, how can I say, expand that. This morning, there was a, a breakfast for all the guys. And there was a young person here in our group. Young, but very much focused on the Lord, a growing and developing young man. And he led that study. He had his dad read the scripture. And then he asked some questions. And very wisely as a young man, he said very little, but he took it all in. And so he kind of led it, facilitated it, and we went with it. And the guys that were at that time, not one of them had a problem that this young kid was facilitating this event. So that intergenerational thing seems to keep people hanging on a little bit longer. So let me encourage you, young people, to dialogue with a mature old person. Watch this now. Of the same sex. I'd also encourage you, young people, that when you've got questions, go up with your questions. You can ask your buds, but go up with your questions. Start with your parents. Start with your youth leaders. Come to some of the leadership in the church. 
And you have an open door to me anytime you'd like. I'll put you at the head of the line. But I want you to have that intergenerational connection. Here's number three. And this now focuses not just on the church working with our young people, but it's also parents now. The most important factor that seemed to scream the loudest after this research was the lives of the teens who developed sticky faith. They had a parent who was willing to walk with them through their faith journey. In other words, you stayed vitally connected to your young person. And life has a way to throw a lot of of good things at you as far as activities, but those good things can keep you away from the great things if you're not careful. Did Did you catch that? Do you resonate with that? So it does mean what is the higher value is to make sure that you have that relationship and developing that relationship with your young person so that when that relationship has to then begin to drift distance and time because of age and life experiences as they get older, they always know, who's my go-to guy? Dad. Who's my go-to woman? Mom. Who's my go-to church? Circle. And that we'll be ready for them. And we're going to walk with them on those journeys. So I would like to encourage you to keep the faith and help them keep the faith as well. There's a lot more I'd like to say about the conversation that you need to have with your kids, but we're going to kind of get into this. I want to have you open up the Word of God now. All of those are excellent. We probably could grab some proof text for that, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to hammer down on some biblical principles, and then we'll be done. We'll be finished. I'm going to call this five ways to help our youth keep the faith. Most kids might abandon the faith, but I still think we can be convinced that they don't have to leave the faith. So what are five things we can do? These would, Out of everything I've said, I would want you to own these more than anything. Number one, pray for them to not just survive, but to thrive in a secular worldview environment. Pray for them to not just survive, but to thrive in a secular world environment. I think intellectually we know that prayer is important. I think biblically we know prayer is important. And I think when we're under the gun, emotionally we think prayer is important. And some of us kind of incorporate prayer into our our life as an important slice of the pie, which I get that a little bit. You know, you can't pray all day long, but the whole concept of just abiding in Christ, abiding in communion with the Lord, that's part of prayer. But I want to ramp it in this direction. And that is that we would ramp up our prayer realizing that it is an often neglected weapon that we have to help our kids not abandon the faith. I am not ever implying that you don't pray for your kids. What I am suggesting is that we all pray more for our kids. Now, when you do that, you're saying, Stan, I got to... I'm so busy, I don't have time to pray more for. Real simple with that one. Just stop doing good things. So you have more time to do great things. Did you catch that? So you're going to have to work at that and own in your heart that if you want to walk with your kids and have an intergenerational faith, it's going to require that you are at the throne of grace for your kid, even if it's all by yourself. Something has got to go in our life. I know I'm not even going to pretend to tell you what it should be in your life, but I will trust that you will ramp up the prayer. 
Now, the passage I've put forth here is a very unique one. It's one you already memorized. Jesus rose up a great while before day. He went to a solitary place, and there he prayed. We have it memorized. We use it when we say, have your devotions, get up early. This is where you do it. Get alone where it's quiet, all of that. I get that. But you know what is often left out is the context. The context of that verse was Jesus was busy all day, all day, all day. Then he was up late at night ministering, 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 and it implies, at least in that context, that he got up early the next morning. So that's saying he was busy doing what the Father's business was. I'm going to assume that you and I are busy doing what we believe the Father would have us do, okay? But he still got up early. Now, what it doesn't say in the context is exactly what he prayed for, at least in this part, all right? So now I have to ask, what would he be praying for? I have no idea. And I tell my kid that. I don't know exactly what he prayed, but I could say, at other times when he prayed, here are some of the things he prayed for. And now in this context, he prayed for Peter. Now, what Peter wasn't was his son, okay? But Peter was the next generation leader, and there could be a case made that all of the guys that he chose to be on his team, on Jesus' team, were younger than most of you and I think they were, okay? So in, that, in any case, they were young, and Jesus prayed for them. Now, the question is, what did he pray specifically for Peter? So maybe I could use Paul or Jesus' prayer for Peter and use that as perhaps a, a, a guideline for my prayer for my son Joe. Okay, what could it be? Let's look at the verse. Next verse is in Luke, chapter 22, and it says this. He tells Peter, Simon, Simon, usually he uses the word Simon when he's, you know, Simon's kind of got off the reservation. He says, behold, pay attention. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. So I'm going to assume that Satan wants to sift my son, your sons and daughters, like wheat. Then it goes on to say, but I have prayed for you. It's kind of interesting. He didn't say, I'm praying for you or I will pray for you. He says, I have prayed for you. Then he goes on to say that your faith may not fail. Now, I know he knows all things from beginning, so I, I can't pretend to be Jesus, but I can say that my son's faith could fail. It could. No matter what we've done, what we poured in, all of that, it could fail. But notice it says, and you, he says to, to Simon, once you have turned again, and many scholars think that's basically should you fail and you turn back to the Lord again, or if you return to the Lord in some capacity that you're reconnecting to the Lord. He says, and I'm praying for this, I'm praying for you that your faith won't fail, but once you really get your act together, notice what it says, I'm praying that you would strengthen your brothers. Now, why is that important to me? I don't want my son merely to get his act together with God. I want my son to get his act together for God because others need him. Others need him too. So that our faith doesn't just become our little safety net. It becomes something to help us, to sustain us, so we can then come alongside other broken people. In this case, back to the family. John 17, the same idea. He was praying for his disciples perhaps by extension, praying for us as we go a little bit further. So my question to you is, is it time now to redirect some of our prayers more to our, toward our kids? I didn't say to start, maybe for some, but for most, just a little bit more, a little bit more pointed. Those of you that have an infant, are you praying for their mate someday? Anyway, it goes on and on. And so you say, I could, I could, I could pray all day. I know you can, and I know I could, um, you know, wanting to, but not practically, so you and the Lord sort it out. Where do you need to pray? How do I need to pray? And if you need some help, look up here for a second. And you're trying to, I know what, I, just help me with that. This room right here, right now, is loaded with people that will come alongside you to help you. Their kids are walking with the Lord. They've paid the price, and they'll help you. And they'll pray with you. They'll pray for you and for your kids.
Number two, the second biblical thing to keep in mind now. So while that is a general prayer, more specifically, we're honing in on our kids. Number two, mentally, morally, and spiritually, the mental morality kind of together, and spiritually prepare them for what is coming. Now, I'd be very careful for, watch this now, over-putting down the secular worldview and using inflammatory rhetoric about those people who believe and live a secular worldview. Are Are you tracking with me? I'm not trying to minimize the sinfulness, the wickedness. I'm not trying to minimize the consequences of that lifestyle and that thinking. I'm not trying to uh, um, um, cool off hell for them. What I am trying to say, though, is if I'm going to penetrate that secular culture, I have to remember that Jesus came in the world not to condemn the world, but to what? Save the world. And so somehow, I don't have to agree with them. I have to be very careful that I don't even imply that I agree with that view. But I also have to work just as hard to make sure that I'm able to engage that. So when we're helping our kids, we need to really give them a wake-up call of what they're going to face when they get out there. And some of the easiest ways to do that is just open up the newspaper when you watch a television show. Tell them what's already out there. And the only difference between that out there today and that out there tomorrow is that you won't be there to help them when they're out there with all that. So you're going to warn them of that. Now, where did I get that? You know, I look over here at the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. Would you look at it as I read this to you? This is, to me, this is, this is life-changing. This, this is a verse written to me because it's written to, to elders, to pastors, to shepherds. And he says, I've been with you guys all this time and now I'm telling you what to do. While I was with you, I showed you what to do. That means warn these people of these jokers coming in. And he says, I want you also at the same time to keep on doing this. And so I'm hearing this for me, but it's as if those elders had children and those children were those church members. And so in a sense, like you are parents and grandparents, your flock, your home flock would be your kids. And here's what Paul said. I know that after my departure, and in this case, after your departure from our household, savage wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. And from even among your own friends or associates, people are going to arise. They're going to speak all sorts of perverse things, whether it's theological, moral, it's all underneath Satan's worldview, to draw, you, draw them away and draw you away, to be disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Wake up. Remember that night and day, I model this in front of you. I did this for a long time. So I'm just saying, share this with your kids. Help them to be strong. Teach them how to put on the whole armor of God. And there's a passage of what that armor looks like. And you could look at that, study it, memorize it. But help them to really be prepared. And an arrow shot at them. You be there to bandage them up again and love on them. Let them know that the only safe place is you and your family. Number three, inspire. This is a a new way to look at it, so I'm warning you. (laughs) Inspire them to look at the next few years as missionally, as missionally. So in other words, when they're leaving your house, it's not like, okay, the rite of passage is um, you can go out now and get your own apartment and I'll be there, I'm, I'm out here if you need me. It's when they go to school that they're going to school and you're not begging them, oh, please don't abandon the faith. Oh, if you're gonna abandon the faith, come see me, come talk to me. Yeah, that's okay, but really I want my kids to go out and they're ready to stand strong, last long. So something is given to them. They're willing to be able to lovingly, correctly, accurately, biblically, academically, intellectually shut that down. Because truth is more powerful than lies. Love is more powerful than hate. Do I hear a word on that? 
That's true. So I want the kids to go out missionally. Who has taught us how to do that? None other than the cult, the Mormons. They send those kids out for two years. What does that do when they go out to do that? It'll probably weed some out, but the other side of it is it makes them stronger in lies, untrue. So I would say send them out, but also send them out missionally. Let me show you something that's kind of weird. I read this this week as I was preparing this message about David the shepherd boy. We all know that he ran after Goliath. Remember that? You know the whole story. You've taught it to your kids. They all know it. But when I went back to the scripture, it said he ran to the army to meet Goliath. Don't ever forget that. He was so strong in his faith that he didn't wait so much for Goliath to come to him. He didn't just kind of nonchalantly sashay up to Goliath. He ran, and not just to Goliath, he took on all of Goliath's buddies, his entire army. And his army wasn't just friends of Goliath. They were completely war machines, human masculine war machines. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.